This podcast is brought to you by Apogee Electronics. Since 1985, Apogee's been creating transformative products that set the standard for ultimate quality and absolute simplicity in music recording. Apogee, make music sound amazing. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. When we prep for tape op interviews, it is typical to print out discographies, but in the case of our next guest, it was 48 pages long. Bob Clearmountain needs no introduction. He has worked with a who's who of music's biggest artists, including Bruce Springsteen, The Rolling Stones, The Who, Morrissey, Sheryl Crow, Tina Turner, Brian Adams, Crowded House, Bon Jovi, Hall & Oates, Travis Tritt, Elton John, David Bowie, and at least 47 more pages of music makers and shakers. He is still considered the mixer's mixer and works closely with Apogee Electronics on the development of recording studio essentials. Tape Op publisher John Bocciagalupi sat down recently to chat with Bob at his Los Angeles studio. Enjoy. Thank you for, for taking the time to sit down with us. My pleasure, yeah, I love Tape Op, yeah, I love your magazine. I was going to steal a line from David Letterman and say our next guest needs no introduction. <laughs> I usually start these interviews by going to the all music, you know, allmusic.com mm -hmm. discography yeah. page and print it out. And yours was 48 pages long. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, that's too many trees. <laughs> it's funny because um, I just did a, well, a few months ago, I went down to Full Sail and did a little um, seminar. Well, not a, it was really just an interview with one of their professors, their music professors. And um, they had quite a crowd there, like about 300 kids in there, in this auditorium. And bef to introduce me, what he did was he went on, on uh, All Music Guide and actually printed that, yeah. right? And, and, uh, and then he, he taped the pages all end to end. Wow. And then he, <laughs> he, he brought the stack of pages out and before he brought me out and had one of his students grabbed the end and they pulled it all the way to the back of the room. Oh, <laughs> Just as a graphic demonstration <laughs> yeah. of how old I am, basically. Well, you know, one of the things that struck me as I, as I was going through this, I, I know you started off in, on, in New York and were engineering mm -hmm. and mixing, but you've, you're now mainly mixing, right? It's, right. You're doing le a lot less tracking anyway, I would assume. Yeah, very little. Yeah. Um, and so, Mixing, I, I would imagine, allows you to work on more records exactly. than if you're having to track and produce. And do you enjoy that aspect of, of it? Well, the thing was, because I did produce for a while in the 80s, I thought, you know, all of us engineers thought, oh, well, that's what you, you're trying to, you're trying to become a producer. And um, so I kind of went along with that. And it, it was always my favorite part of producing was uh, the end of the day when, oh, anybody want a rough mix? Oh, I can do a nice rough mix, you know? And that was the part that I enjoyed the most. I didn't actually like producing. And I did it, you know, I didn't admit to myself that I didn't like it for years, because, oh, well, this is what you're supposed to do. And I finally got it. I finally got, well, why am I doing something that I don't think I'm not actually that good at? And, um, and I didn't really like. I'm not a psychologist, and you really have to be to be a, pro a good producer. And not only that, but you have to be 
an accomplished musician, and I was a, sort of a hack musician. You know, I, I couldn't really go over to the piano and say, "Oh, play these chords," you know. And um, so, but mixing, I can sit down and go, "What do you think of this?" and push some faders and turn some knobs, and dial up some verb. And what do you think of that? You know, <laughs> that I can do. And uh, and I think I I got pretty pretty good at it over the years. And and uh, and then I started to realize people were booking me just to mix their album and you know a record that they had finished producing and and not only that but my manager at the time said why are you bothering with producing you can do so much better just mixing records and so it just made sense and how long on average does it take you to mix a song well it just depends on what it is sure. but um, normally if the arrangements are good and, and the producer and the artists aren't dickheads <laughs> it'll take you know i'd get two a day oh okay. normally that's about oh. normal um and then sometimes if something's complicated or you know we have to make a lot of decisions it'll take a day okay and um and then sometimes you work with somebody like, like mount lang where it takes maybe a week <laughs> and i don't know i don't really understand why that is but <laughs> do you still enjoy doing this is this something i mean you probably don't have to do this if you didn't want to but you're still working at it, so I absolutely enjoy it. I mean, really, it's it's pretty much my favorite thing to do. Still, you know, I just I just love the the puzzle of it. I love getting a new multi-track, putting it up, never hearing it be before, maybe listening to to a rough mix or something like that, get a good idea of what the artist and the producer had in mind, and then figuring out, going through and figuring out what each element is and what they're kind. You know, I go through the faders. I'll just Put up a rough mix and say, okay, what do these things do? What do they contribute to the the um, narrative here of this song or whatever it is? And then I always go through this uh, the crisis mode of putting the thing up and going, oh my God, what am I going to do with this? Uh, I I don't know how I'm going to ever make this sound good. And then after after a little while, it just t tends to come together. I get drawn into it. I figure out what everything does, and then. Um, turns into a, something that sounds like something and uh, it's just so much fun to do that you know, just it's like it's like working on a a crossword puzzle or something like that you know once you start getting it it's, it starts to come and and you just feel like you've done something we've been wanting to sit down with you for years and talk to you about this and, and one of the uh comments i've heard from someone who worked with you that really intrigued me was part of the impetus for wanting to do this they said they were they were working on a track and they were just lost, and they were just like, ah, oh, we just don't know if this is working or not. And they they had you come in, and do a mix, and they said within 20 minutes you had like cleared the clutter and found the song, and it was like it's all it's working all of a sudden. <laughs> I mean, do you generally hone in on things pretty quickly? Do you have like an aesthetic or a method, or what's your what? How do you solve the puzzle? Well, there's no particular method. No, it's it's really, uh, I don't even understand it. That's the problem. It's a little scary because uh, it doesn't seem like I'm doing anything to me. You know, it's like, why can't anyone do this? It just seems so so simple. But it, it's, it's just you find the obvious things that that pique your interest in a song. You, you find the things that don't and you kind of weed them out. And um, and 
I, I mean, I base everything around the voice. To me, that's what pop music and rock music is all about. It's mainly, it's kind of the narrative of the of the song, and um, and if anything is conflicts with it, this is a lot. I learned a lot of this stuff from working with Springsteen. Actually, his thing is always the singer is the focus, and if anything gets in the way of the message of the song, between the the what he's or she is doing and portraying and the listener, then you have to kind of weed that stuff out. And uh, it's just become instinctive to me, I think, you know, and probably not just me, but a lot of mixers that, who do what I do. You just, uh, after a while, you you instinctively gravitate to, to the important things, the, the things that support the what the song's about, what the music's about. Do you have like go-to tricks you do or is part of the part of what you still enjoy like coming up with new well methods or well first of all I usually I start a, a mix with um, a blank slate so I'll just normal out the console completely so it's not like I have some template that I use I mean the only template is that I like certain like I know you guys can't see it because this is a podcast but <laughs> the vocals always comes up on channel 24 which is the center of the console Right backing vocals are really either just to the left or to the right of that, you know. And then I'll have the guitars to the left, then the then the drums over farther left, percussion way over, then the way over to the left, and then on the other side I'll have keyboards on the right, um, and then if there's any strings and horns and things like that, they go way down there on the right. And um, so I I kind of group everything where I know where they are. You know, I see the guitars are here. The, Keyboards are down there, and, and uh, so that I can get to things really quickly. If I hear a keyboard that doesn't sound right or it needs some help, I know right where to go without having to, to hunt through a bunch of stuff. You know, and I think most mixers probably do pretty much the same thing. I would think. Plus, I color code everything. Guitars are blue, keyboards are green, drums are black <laughs> on the little scribble strip. And um, but other than that, no, I just start with. I, normal out the EQs, get rid of all the effects. I'll try a bunch of different effects on the voice. Sometimes there's no effect on the voice. I'll always have the vocal in the mix, pretty much. Unless unless it's really complicated, sometimes I'll turn the voice off, but normally it's it's in there. Maybe it's down a bit. Um, but I, I always like to hear the whole, the whole thing. That was a nice thing that when automation came about, you know, we used to mix records back in the 70s before there was automation. And the problem was I couldn't, it was hard to mix a record and hear it at the same time, you know, an overall picture of it, because you're always thinking about these little details. Trying to remember of, to mute this at that point. And, exactly, yeah. you know, automation was such a wonderful thing when it got good that you could just add to your mix and you could sit back and listen to the mix while you were doing it and hear it as a finished record instead of hearing it as little bits of pieces you know I mixed something the other day um, with an artist who uh, is very good brilliant artist uh, new, a young guy and um, he was really into breaking everything down and listening oh let's just hear listen to the drums for a while you know okay let's just listen to the percussion for a while that's and I, and I turned to him and I said you know I'm flying blind because that doesn't make any sense to me because if, if I don't hear the whole picture I, I don't know where I'm going you know, I, I can't, I can't judge what the drums are supposed to be doing if I can't hear the guitars, if I can't hear the keyboards. You know, 
And are you still using the console automation? Or are you using Pro Tools automation at all? Or? No, I don't use any Pro Tools automation. Mm -hmm. I use the console, the SSL G Plus is the best automation for mixing ever because you don't really think about it. You're, it's natural, you can get at everything all at once. I can just grab a fader and, and ride it. You know, I'm, I don't have a mouse. I don't have to, there's not a lot of programming involved. Um, it's very straightforward, simple. I mean, the way it works is you, you actually talk to the computer in a way, because you've got a bunch of command buttons like go to mix, um, you know, from here to <laughs> all these crazy buttons. And you're, you're actually, in a way, talking to the computer. It's, it's archaic. I mean, the last software <laughs> update was 95. Sometimes archaic's good. Yeah, it's ancient. <laughs> it does one thing really well. Does one thing really well, and it, it and can't send text messages on the console. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> and, and it really it really works. It's such a natural. It's become part of me. And I mean, I got into this automation early '80s, late '70s, I think, before it was as good as it is now. You know, the early versions were pretty buggy, but. Um, I just loved it right away, and and I haven't found any. I've tried a bunch of different automation systems, moving fader systems, and and none of them come close to this, as far as being able to do what I what I want. I would just wish that somebody would come out with a new system that was based on this and on the, on the way it works and was better. <laughs> now you've got 64 inputs here. It's 72 channel desk. Oh, 72, okay. Yeah, there's eight more down here on the oh, left. Okay. But um, it's, uh, some of them, a bunch of those down on the right are uh, re returns mostly. Decades ago, that was probably more than you could <coughs> use, but now sometimes I'm sure you get in things that have 200 tracks. Max it out all the time. And do you, do... So do you internally sum stuff in within Pro Tools then? Yeah, absolutely. You know, but if you do... don't have to, do you just bus everything out to a fader? If I don't have to, yeah, I'll keep everything separate, sure. Okay. You know, smaller sessions like if I'm working with Don Was or somebody like that who keeps it to a nice minimum, um, I don't have to do that. But yeah, there's lots of sessions where you get a huge string and horn sections and you'll just subgroup them down to a stem or, a, you know, layered backing vocals, things like that. Or, yeah, I'll just have to bring it up on a pair of faders or something. And you, you still got quite a few hardware reverbs in here and, and powered up. Are you, oh, yeah. Do you still use those over most of the reverb plugins? Or uh, I use AltaVerb mostly for reverb. Okay. And so I'm using it as a external um, box, really. You know, it's part of the session, part of the, the multi-track session, but I send it off an aux off the console, mm -hmm. and then it comes back to some returns. Everything comes back to a... I use the Symphony, Apogee Symphony I.O. as a line mixer for all my returns. Okay. Because it's got an internal low latency mixer built in and it's super stable. Um, but, um, but then there's some other reverbs. Like I still use the PCM70s because they do some things that nothing else does. And these uh, Yamaha SPX990s are pretty good for a few specific effects. You've got a few of the Eventide H3000s. Yeah, yeah. Still. Use those for harmonizers and various things. This Ultra Harmonizer has some great effects. I actually wrote a couple of um, programs in there for them when that for, before that first came out, and um, for doing like tape flanging and things like that. 
And what are the Roland units there? All right, these are just really basic digital delays. Ah, the okay. SD-3000s are just the old, old standbys, and they still work great, and they're really simple. The Yamaha D5000 is one of the best digital delays ever designed, and nobody ever even knew about it. <laughs> you know, it was really versatile. It's got two inputs and six outputs, and it's, it's fantastic. And so, yeah, it's a few, few things. So you got your start in, well, New York, right? You were New York-based, mm -hmm. and you were working out of the power station? Originally, a studio called Media Sound okay. on 57th Street. I started there in 72, and uh, which really <laughs> shows how old I am. And uh, worked there for five years. And then Tony Bon Jovi, uh, who was one of the, the mixers there, came to me one day and said, look, I'm... I've done pretty well off some big disco hits that he had. He did disco Star Wars. <laughs> and he says, I'm going to build my own studio. Do you want to be part of it? I said, yeah, absolutely. Because Media was a great studio, but they were a little um, behind the times, I think, as far as in certain ways. Um, and so I, should, I said, yeah, sure. I said, can it be a rock studio? He said, look, it could be any kind of studio you want as long as people come and work there. I don't care. <laughs> And, uh, and so great. Media Sound was more jingles and, and R&B music. And I was into rock. You know, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, and I was a fan of British rock mostly. And, and so, well, first of all, we searched for a building for Power Station, and um, I helped him design it. I mean, he was the main designer, but I kind of threw in my two cents here and there. So yeah, then Power Station, I worked there for, I don't know, as a staff guy for two or three years. But then I just, by default, became independent. I mean, people were hiring me to mix stuff and to produce. And, and I thought, well, this isn't right. I'm getting paid by the studio. And I'm also getting paid by these other people that just want to pay me directly. And so I ended up quitting the studio. Plus the fact that Power Station had a, a policy of two sessions per day in each room. They had three rooms, so there were six sessions a day. And I was working with, I, I worked with, uh, produced a Hall & Oates album, and they wanted to lock the room out. And there was a couple other projects like that, and the power station wouldn't allow that. So I said, well, well what am I gonna do? And so I you know, went to Electric Lady or Right Track, some of the other studios in town, and then I just ended up kind of totally independent. We sat down with Tony at the AES show last year mm. and got the whole tour of Power Station, and he's a strong-willed guy. Oh, yeah. He's a brilliant, <laughs> yeah. brilliant guy. Yeah. He's kind of nuts, and also, <laughs> yeah. but in a good way. Yeah. You know, and he built an incredible thing there. I mean, it's still the, the top studio in New York. Well, so when did you move to L.A., and what prompted the move out here? Yeah, well, the late 80s, I ended up working more in London and LA than New York. And um, it was crazy too, because I just bought this really nice apartment on the 29th floor overlooking Central Park. And I was there maybe two or three weeks out of the year. <laughs> it was insane. And uh, you know, I'm flying back and forth between LA and, and London. And um, I finally realized this is ridiculous. I've, I met my future wife, Betty Bennett from Apogee uh, because I was buying Apogee gear and um, out here. And she said, wow, what are you doing? And he was, she was, she's really smart financially, you know, and 
a real businesswoman. And geez, you have, you're paying for an apartment in London. You're paying a mortgage on an apartment in New York, a house in Woodstock, and an apartment in LA. <laughs> it's like, like how, how are you saving any money? And I said, well, I'm not really saving any money. <laughs> And she said, "No, we got to we got to fix that." And, and uh, so I got rid of most of it. And just she said, "You should just move to L.A. because most of your work is in L.A." And, and uh, she, she was right. And so I, you know, I came out here. Um, well, let's talk about Apogee a little bit since Apogee is mm -hmm. sponsoring this podcast. <laughs> yeah, obviously, you're very close to to Apogee. Um, how involved are you in you know working with them on on products and? I'm sure you must have some input. Some input. They don't always listen to me, <laughs> but um, you know, yeah, they pull me in for for uh, product planning meetings and ideas about what to do. And and when they, you know, they always run run the stuff by me. And often they listen to me. Sometimes they they just don't. And uh, but they do pretty well. You know, most of the time they uh, they nail it. There's some really brilliant people over there. I mean, I have so much respect for these guys. This guy named Lucas Vandermeer designs all the um, the analog electronics, which is really the people don't realize it, but with a, a digital audio circuit, the analog part is really the most important part because it's got to sound good before it gets to the conversion, and then after it comes out of the conversion when it comes back to analog. And they just know what there's so much experience over the years. The thing about Apogee that people don't realize is that digital used to sound like crap and nobody liked it when it was first invented, when, when CDs were first around and, and we had the digital multitracks. It was harsh, it, it didn't sound good and it was all because of the anti-aliasing filters that um, because at a 44.1 sample rate you need a brick wall filter at half that sample rate. Uh, otherwise, you get distortion. If it's trying, if you're trying to sample frequencies that you don't have enough samples for. Right, the Nyquist the theorem, basically. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Then you're going to get distortion. But the filter, the people that originally designed digital thought it had to be an absolute brick wall filter. Of course, that cause, causes ringing down into the audio spectrum, down into you know, below 15K. And they figured out that if you contour that filter, if you make it more of a sort of a roll-off, it can still be just as effective at anti-aliasing, but it doesn't cause that harshness. All of a sudden, the harshness goes away. And um, they were really the first to just figure that one out. And that's Apogee's why digital is became palatable. Well, you said that you, I mean, you came to Apogee because you were buying all their converters. Well, I was. So you were a fan before you were involved. I was mixing to that. You know, and, and uh, I loved DATs because they were convenient and um, there was no tape hiss. I, I never was a big analog fan, even though most of my favorite records were done on analog, of course. But uh, it always never sounded the same coming back. After I'd, I'd mixed to analog tape. My biggest example was working with the band Chic. The producers were in the band, right? They'd be out there in the studio playing and I'd be the only one in the control room. And I'm listening to this, like, Good Times or Le Freak or something. I think, man, this is the most amazing sounding thing I've ever, ever heard. And because um, they play all live in the studio. I mean, they were a real live R&B band. They'd come back and listen back. And to them, it's, they were, you know, they are grooving. 
And I'm listening to it, and I said, boy, it's too bad. It didn't sound like what it sounded like <laughs> when I was just listening through the board and not through the tape. And it was always a little frustrating to me. Just the tape saturation? Just whatever it is that the tape did, it wasn't, it was, it was changing it. It was making a decision about the sound that wasn't mine. <laughs> it's like there's somebody else making, <laughs> making decisions about the audio. And that, I'm a bit of a control freak, I guess, when it comes to sound. And uh, digital came along, and once Apogee got involved, now playing it back, that's what it sounded like when we recorded it. It's exactly what it sounded like. So I was quite happy about that. And so, yeah, so I was using, I was mixing to DAT, and, uh, but I wanted it to sound better. The original DAT machines were a bit harsh, and Apogee figured out how to get rid of that harshness. Cool, you, you mentioned working with, with Sheik. Um, you did quite a few records with those guys, right? Yeah, I think I did three albums. Okay. I mean, just for, just, just Sheik albums. And there was Sister Sledge, and there was, um, this Norma Jean. There's a few other th things that they produced mm -hmm. that I did with them, and um, and then I was off into producing, and so we kind of parted ways. Although with Nile Rogers, I did Let's Dance. Right. I was gonna say David I just Bowie. recently randomly pulled Let's Dance out of the vinyl copy I had right. from back in the day. I put it on, listened to it. I'm like, man, this record sounds great. You know, I'm kind of oh, looking at the credits. I'm like, oh, Bob Clearmountain <laughs> did this. <laughs> that was a fun record to make. And you recorded and mixed it, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I assume Niall brought you in on that one, or yeah. As far as I know, I get, guess that's what happened. I don't know. <laughs> I was booked on it one day. I looked, oh, you're doing a, a Bowie record. <laughs> and was that at the power station? Yeah. yeah. So that so that was got torn down every day and set back up the next day. It did. <laughs> it wow. absolutely did. Yeah. But that it was an amazing session because it was they they booked three weeks start to finish, including mixing. And I thought, well, who does a whole album in three weeks? And so I actually added, a, you know, I went into the office and I said, let's just put another couple of weeks on hold. And we finished it in three weeks, finished mixing it, everything. Wow. And it was unbelievable. I mean, I mean, the top musicians in New York, first off, and Niall doing the arrangements, it's just the well between Niall and, and David, really, the two of them were just an amazing combination of talents. Going back to that, era i mean that was sort of one of the records that sort of defined you know the sound of the 80s hmm. and a lot of the records in the 80s almost went pretty over the top with the huge gated snare drum sound and all that and your records never went there although your stuff would sound like wow that sounds great it's huge it's full it's got depth and dimension that you never pushed it that next step that made it sound really dated in hindsight, is that was that something you thought about at the time? Um, well, yeah. It's funny that you say that because not everybody would agree with you on that. Because <laughs> I mixed um, some records for Robbie Robertson, and the first one, Daniel Lenoir produced, mm -hmm. and I, I think the, his label, Gary Gersh at uh, EMI, suggested that I, I mix his first solo album. And Daniel was like, oh, you don't want that, that guy. You're going to get that Born in the USA snare drum, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and Bruce was into, into the big, at the time, for Born in the USA, for that album, he was really into that big, huge gated snare drum sound. I mean, more so than I was. You know, he would push 
that harder. You would say, no, no, it's got to be as uh, big know. as it could be. <laughs> you know, and I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, well, if that's what you want, man. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm never one to argue with the artist or producer. Right. That's what you want, that's what you're getting. And uh, obviously it worked for that record. It was yeah. the right thing. But um, some people felt it was too much. <laughs> and uh, But yeah, normally, I, to me, it should sound fairly, it should sound big and impressive and it should grab you. Um, especially back then where records were certainly, certainly going in that direction. But there were ones that were records that were too over the top and too, you know, I hear these, I still hear records nowadays where, okay, why is that bass drum so loud? Really, is that right? I mean, yeah. are bass drums that loud <laughs> ever? <laughs> you know, to me, it's it's about the song. If the if the any element of the the instrumentation is taking over the spotlight from the song, I don't think that's a good thing. Unless the song is so bad that that's what people care about is the, the damn snare drum. <laughs> you know, <laughs> then then there's a problem with the music. I think. So your, your I'm not, personal well, not, taste was to sort of pull that back in. I'm not a, a man bit. of extremes. Let's put it that way. You know, I I don't like the extremes. I I'd like to hear the music come through as music. Talking last night with my friend Tom Monahan, who's an engineer, and we're talking about some of your your work and, mm -hmm. and what we're discussing now. And I mean, he's saying that he feels like your stuff has a lot of air to it. And I was I I had said, well, you know, all Bob stuff, it still felt natural. It felt like almost hyper-natural, but it didn't feel unnatural. Right, well, that's, that's good to hear. Because, <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably right, you know. I mean, I don't know if it's a conscious thing that I do, that, but that sounds like a good description of probably what's in my head when I'm mixing. One of the first records that, that I was sort of aware of your work was the Brian Adams single, Run To You, huh. which, to be honest, I'm not a big Brian Adams fan, but at the time, that song would come on my crappy car radio, especially that guitar coming out of the bridge. I'd be like, crap, I know that's a guitar, but why does it sound so good? It just sounded better than anything else on the radio. Oh, thank you. And I went and bought the record, and I'm just like, oh. That to me just was like this sort of hyper-real guitar sound. I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole song, really. Yeah. Was, was... Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was a big thing for me, you know? I mean, of course, Brian and I were... were had become really good friends by then, but uh, to me, that's how rock records should sound. You know, not overhyped, but but just big and, and warm, and, and it should it should draw you in. That's my thing. Like, the, there shouldn't be anything in there that that's annoying or pisses you off. You, know, you just kind of want to you just want to live there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the records that I grew up with. That's like Beatle records. I wanted to live there. You know, <laughs> Leon Russell records. I just it was so much fun to listen to that stuff, and I wanted to be there when that was going on. You know what I mean? And that was the whole thing for me. I noticed one of the more recent things you worked on was Ethan Gruska. Oh, yeah. Who I assume you, Tony Berg and you Tony, are, are yeah. good friends. Tony and I are old friends, yeah. Fantastic record, I thought. Very unusual sounding record. I learned a lot from, from that because it was, it was difficult to, to mix. Because uh, the way it was recorded, Tony's got this this upright piano with a. It's just got I don't know if it's a some kind of damper between the. It's like a piece of felt or something between the hammers and the.
keyboards. And so a lot of that record is based on that piano sound. And Ethan sings while he plays. So he's, it's an upright piano. So he's sitting basically right and in, singing into the piano mics. And so there were a lot of phase problems and all kinds of, okay, how do you make this work with, with uh, this leakage coming from his voice, plus the piano leakage into his vocal mic. It was all kind of one thing and, and um, getting the effects just right, just the environment of the record um, exactly right for the, the songs. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a dark record, a lot of it. And uh, so there was a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error when it came to various effects. I wish everybody could hear that in surround. You know, everything I've done in the last 15 years, I've also done a surround mix for. Like that record in particular, it's, there's some pretty incredible sounding surround environmental things. You know, I don't, I don't spin things around the room or pan things crazily. I, I just kind of like the feeling of being in the middle of the music. And uh, so there, there's some nice, nice things there, but maybe someday somebody will hear it yeah. <laughs> other than me. What's well, the whole, you know, the immersive audio is sort of what yeah. everyone's talking about now. Well, it sort yeah. of ties into what you're saying. You want to be in that. Yeah. You want to be in the song. So yeah, I can exactly. see how that would be something you're Yeah, I got a whole, a whole uh, vault full, well, a whole massive hard drive full of <laughs> surround mixes that no one's ever heard that hopefully somebody will hear someday. Okay, so this is an unfair question. You can pass if you want, but do you have a favorite record you've worked on? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know that's, that question comes up a lot. It's, it's, not, a, I, it's not fair. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't have a, a favorite record, but um, there's been a few that I could, I could say that uh, Amy Mann's first solo record called Whatever was one of my favorites. It, it's just, I think, she's a brilliant songwriter. I wish I was still working with her. That record was, you know, it was a combination of her and John Bryan's quirkiness who produced it. And uh, just really unusual sounds and just great songs and great lyrics. It's just, it's just one of my favorites. The Crowded House records were amazing to me. Um, especially Woodface, I think. Um, last year I mixed a record by the band Squeeze. Remember Squeeze? Oh yeah. There's this record that they did that nobody knows about. The kept a massive secret. It's called uh, The Knowledge, which I still think is one of the best records I've ever mixed in my life. I mean, literally, this record is a masterpiece. And uh, it's a shame that more people haven't heard it. Is it still not out or is it's it out? out and... It's out. You can get it. You know, they're, I guess they're considered old guys and so nobody bothers with them anymore. And they're, you know, a band from, what, the early 80s. And yeah. so these guys are still writing unbelievable songs. You know, Different and Tilbrook are two of the best songwriters on the planet. Of course, Avalon was, for Roxy Music, was um, something I've had more positive comments on than anything I've ever done. I like that one a lot. But it's funny because the records that I, that I've done that I like aren't, that are my favorites, I should say, aren't necessarily the, like the big hits. <laughs> you know, you know, I love the Brian Adams records. I love the Springsteen records, the Stones. I mean, I love them all, but they're not necessarily my favorites. That sort of almost ties into another question. How? How developed is your sense a song is going to be a hit while you're working on it? Are you, are you kind of working on it going like, oh, this is going to be huge? Or do you not even kind of think of the, in those terms? 
Um, I no longer think in those terms. <laughs> I mean, the 80s was the time that, you know, when, when you kind of thought about that. Nowadays, I just don't care anymore. Yeah. I just mix things that I like. Hmm. <laughs> and I, I don't care what anybody else thinks. <laughs> and as long, as long as the producer and the artist are happy, and I care about them and, and me. But um, most of the time, I, I can't really tell. Once in a while, when we were recording Good Times for Chic, we were doing the basic track. Before they came into the room for a playback, this has to be a hit. How could this not be a hit? And I remember that, and I tell this story a lot. They came into the room, we're playing back. Bernard Edwards, the bass player, is standing next to me. And uh, I turned to him and I go, where did you come up with that amazing bass line? And he turns to me and says, whoa, you like that? Like he didn't know. <laughs> it's like, what are you nuts? Are you kidding? This is like, this is monumental. I mean, to me, that was like, how could this not be a hit? And I, I didn't know. Didn't hear any vocals. It was just a basic track, you know. So that seemed like a hit to me. Um, Start me up seemed like a hit. That was recorded someplace else, but we were do, we did vocals and some overdubs. And Jagger's like screaming it into my ear in the control room. He goes, "What do you think? This is about a motorcycle. Start it up. Start it up." <laughs> I go, "Yeah, yeah, great." And then so he he goes out there and sings it. And then at one point in the song, he goes. He said, start me up a couple times instead of start it up for whatever reason. I said, well, you know, start me up kind of sounds, something about that sounds better first. And it, it's kind of a, a double thing. You start me up, like get me, you know, it could be sort of a sexual connotation. He goes, yeah, okay. <laughs> so he said, start me up. And um, that all of a sudden, well, that sounds like a hit, hit record. Um, Sonny came home. Sounded like a hit. And that was another one where she had a different lyric to it, which didn't sound like a hit. And then she had a different set of lyrics, and we did an overdub here. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, wow, this sounds like a hit song. So once in a while. <laughs> so you changed it to me. Well, I mean, you know. <laughs> or you heard a, him do it once and then suggest it. Yeah, he, no, it was his idea. Okay. He said it. I, I just suggested that maybe that would be a better better thing. I mean, the track sheet, if you look at the original track sheet, it says start it up. It's a good suggestion. <laughs> I never really care for any characters at all. As you leave, you recognize Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapebop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. And finally, folks, this interview was recorded using the device audio interface from DPA microphones. It's perfect for great sounding recordings on the go. Look like an angel, you're like an angel, you are barely